Welcome to Theosophia, a podcast for women's voices in theology. You can find me at theosophiapodcast.com, my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and at theologycorner.net. I'm your host, Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and today's episode features my friend Claire Brown. She's an Episcopal candidate for ordination in the Diocese of East Tennessee. We have a lovely conversation about her work and her love of the sacraments. But before we dive into that interview, I wanted to say a word about the Women's March last weekend. I don't. I hope a bunch of y'all got to go in your various cities around the U.S. I joined my city here in Oklahoma City in my community, and we met at the, the Capitol on Saturday to partake in the festivities and be in, in solidarity with all those who marched. A couple things stood out to me during the event that um, I really appreciated the thoughtfulness the organizers put into the speakers who all ranged in diversity in terms of ethnicity and race and age and gender. Um, And before we marched, um, they asked the Native or Indigenous women to lead the way and be in, in the front of the march, and I thought that was really important and thoughtful to honor them in that way, given our history and our state, um, our land, if those of you don't know, is where the Trail of Tears ended and had become Indian territory. So we have a lot of Native folks and reservations and headquarters here in Oklahoma. Um, And I also saw a lot of creative and amazing signs that supported and criticized so many different things. And so it was clear that uh, people were there to march for a lot of different reasons. And I really... What caught my eye were the Me Too posters, and we actually chanted, I think we said, like, Me Too, I believe you, and I thought that was really powerful. Um, Rape and sexual assault have touched so many of my close friends' and family's lives, it's just, it's too many to count. So I definitely marched for them in bringing attention to this pervasive problem that needs to stop. And more generally, as I reflected on why I marched, um, I, I have a dream and a desire for women's voices to be valued and empowered in our, in our society. That's why I started this podcast. I believe that the only way things will get better for women and for men is if women's voices gain platforms and use them for speaking our truths. So that's why I marched, and I hope all y'all that march know why you marched too, and I encourage you to tell the world about it. We need your voice as much as we need mine. With that, here's my brilliant and lovely sister, Claire Brown. I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast. Today, I'm here with my good friend and colleague and Episcopal sister, Claire Brown. She did her BA at Lee University in Tennessee. She finished her MDiv at Vanderbilt. Uh, She graduated with me in 2000. What was that, Claire? 16. That sounds right. Okay. And you are finishing up some Anglican studies at the University of the South because you're now a candidate in the Episcopal Church Diocese of East Tennessee. Way to go, girl. And you did some work as a minister and kind of an internship, right, at St. Augustine's Chapel. Yeah. I was uh, there for a year as an intern as part of my studies and then stayed on part-time for a year as a pastoral associate. Or pastoral assistant, I think, was my job title. With the the Reverend Becca Stevens and Mother Alyssa Smith. 
Okay, how we got to know each other. We got to know each other because I, well, we had classes together, but I would come over to St. Augustine's Chapel because it was on campus and I wanted to get to know the other Episcopal, my other Episcopal classmates. And I was fascinated with the fact that we had female priests and two of them were over there. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. And you led a really awesome small group you asked me to be a part of because you were training at the Shalem Institute, getting your certificate that you now have in transforming community. Mm-hmm. So that was really, that was really a great experience. Probably the first time I've ever done anything like that. Yeah. Um, can you say more about the Shalem Institute? I want people to know what this is because I think this is a really cool deal. Yeah. It's this really fantastic learning community in Washington, DC. Um, and they've been doing this for, I don't know, 40, 50 years, I think. Um, but I found out about them because I found myself in divinity school doing an internship where I was basically doing spiritual direction with five people at a time. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, it's just a different skill set than other forms of leadership and pastoral care that I'd been trained in. And so I started seeking out ways to educate myself and I found Shalem and their certificate program in transforming communities is focused on leading groups and retreats. So taking a lot of the questions and spiritual practices and mindsets that you might experience in spiritual direction or spiritual companionship and translating that into a group work setting. Um, So a lot of it is forming yourself to be able to hold space for people to meet God, but also kind of cultivating that listening and leadership of the group dynamic of people coming together to find God together. That's really cool. I'm so excited for you to keep doing that type of work. And I think this has to do too with the project you've undertaken. I wanted you to share a little bit a bit about this too, this advent. It's it's like an email newsletter. You you've teamed up with your friend Michael McCray. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? What is yeah. it called again? It's called Keep Watch With Me. Um, yes, Keep Watch With Me. Yeah. So Michael and I are good friends. And back in the fall, he and I were working together to lead a story exchange with this model called Narrative 4 that's about building radical empathy. And we were talking about other ways of collaborating. And somehow we started talking about spiritual seasons within our social and political climate and talking about how Advent is meant to be this preparation and paying attention and bearing witness. Um, It's why we don't just have Gabriel coming to Mary in the Annunciation in the weeks before Christmas. We also have the prophets kind of calling down God's wrath and bearing witness to the things that were wrong in their worlds and societies. And so we kind of, from there came up with this idea and have brought together some really incredible community activists and chaplains and speakers and writers and priests and pastors, uh, a couple of folks who are incarcerated and some of the most theologically brilliant minds I've ever read. Um, mm-hmm. Just this incredibly diverse group of people through our networks and got them to all agree to write a little quick Advent reflection on this idea of 
keeping watch and um, letting the Advent season be a time where God builds this really incredible gritty hope and peace in us so that then we could carry that into our peacemaking work in the world. That is so cool. And for all you listening out there, just to clarify, some of our listeners aren't liturgical. So Advent is the season we're in, in the Christian liturgical year. That is, is it like six weeks or eight weeks before Christmas happens? Four, four Sundays. It's four. Okay. I don't know why I thought it was more than that. But this is probably my favorite time of the year because we're talking about preparing for the incarnation. And incarnation for me in my theology is super, um, it's just transformative of my faith and how I understand my faith. So Advent's a preparation for that. And I really, I love this concept that y'all have done together. And how can people find it if they want to learn about it or sign up for it in the next couple of weeks? So probably the best way is if you visit um, Michael's website, it's Michael McRae, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-M-C-R-A-Y.com. And he'll have a link on that website uh, where you can sign up. And then, you know, we only have a few days left before the celebration of the incarnation at Christmas, but you can go back and read the reflections from the whole month and, um, with those reflections from all these different folks, uh, either the writer or Michael or I have written a prayer to accompany it. And then I've also developed a unique spiritual practice that goes with every day's reflection. So it's kind of a, so what for your own life and prayer practice that goes with reading. I've been enjoying it. I've been doing mine right when I get into work every morning or like if it's on the weekend when I'm in bed, still like, trying to wake up I read my phone <laughs> <That's awesome>. so <laughs> I've been enjoying them and I was just thinking by the time I air this Advent's over and Christmas will be over and we will be in Epiphany so oh wow yeah yeah, yeah we'll already be in so Epiphany we'll probably, just have some so. nostalgia for the Advent and wish the yeah. <laughs> yeah. a little bit better okay how can people get involved though with the Epiphany or did I we didn't talk about this yet Explain what you're doing, and this is similar to. Well, no, it's not. Epiphany. So it's connected. So the cool thing you're doing with the it's connected. How did you get on this Epiphany book club thing? Okay, so Epiphany is another liturgical season for our non-liturgic folks, and it starts with, um, well, the Feast of Epiphany, but it's the day that the wise men or the magi come to visit Christ. And it's this little season of the year starts January 6th, goes up until Ash Wednesday. And that day changes every year, but all the readings and the whole focus of the church in epiphany is about finding God all over the place. So you're having the reading from first Samuel about God calling to little boy Samuel and he has to learn how to listen Um, the baptism of Jesus where the dove descends and says, this is my beloved son. So it's just all these strange places in the Bible where people are meeting God. Um, And that has always been one of my favorite things, um, both in my own theology and how I view my life, but also in the church calendar. And um, with that coming up, it's kind of an anticlimactic season. 
you know, it's like the dreariest mm-hmm. part of the year. Um, it's when everybody's trying to do their New Year's resolutions and <laughs> not get the flu. And that's like all that's happening. Um, but I think there's a little more to it. There's a little more space. And um, one of the things that's happened with the Advent Reader project is Michael and I decided to start a Facebook discussion group to go with it. And so we've had really incredible response both to the reader and to the group. Um, We ended up with almost 1,300 people in this Facebook forum um, sharing ideas about the readings. Um, There's one artist who's been doing a simple kind of artistic prayer response to each day's readings and sharing them there. People have been sharing songs, personal stories, links to sermons, um, praying for each other, asking questions about the readings, just really incredible engagement. Um, And it kind of helped me see that there's this intersection of experiential faith and the rich tradition of liturgical spirituality Mm-hmm. And that people are hungry for it, and that those people are finding meaningful engagement online. And this kind of group facilitation is something I'm really passionate about, but um, we might talk about this more later. But I have a toddler, so scheduling time to have groups meeting in my home or at a church or to lead a retreat is not super possible for me right now. <laughs> um, it's just way too much of a stretch, but I can facilitate an online community. So um, if folks are interested, there's, it's just a Facebook group. It's super simple format called an epiphany in the world. And you can join and I will be leading a six week study of Barbara Brown Taylor's an altar in the world, which is this book about building your altar wherever you find God in your daily life. And I'll be coming up with spiritual practices that we can, try out together and you know give each other encouragement and feedback or say that was ridiculous it didn't work at all whatever happens happens and um just facilitating discussion around that text and around the things that we're discovering in epiphany and how we can just kind of keep an eye out for the surprising places that we might find god at work yeah i'm i'm really proud of you for doing this claire and i want to to reinforce that claire is amazing at this type of facilitation, you really have a gift and I've experienced it in so many different ways, but I'm really, what I'm most proud of you for, and a lot of the other women I've been talking to is monetizing your gift and your skill set in, in the world of theology, but in the church through online church community. Cause that's what you're doing. That's what this is. Yeah. Just like my, my work with pub theology in the pub, you know, mm-hmm we're doing church and we're monetizing it because it is valuable. We do mm-hmm. bring a skill set we went to school for that mm-hmm. people should, you know, pay money yeah, for value. just like everything yeah. else. Yeah. value. Yeah. And I think like the so, church, you know, like I'm, I, in the group, I suggest a donation, um, but I don't want it to be a barrier for participation, which is how I also sure. see participation in the church. Um, but it is, it's kind of a weird thing. This is the kind of thing that, um, at some point when I'm a priest working in a parish, I would love to be able to offer this, but I'm in this kind of life in between stage where I am in training and formation, but also want to practice my calling and gifts right now. So this is an interesting way to try that out. 
I think it's so cool and brilliant and it's going to take off and you're going to be like a priest, internet priest or something (laughs) (laughs) until your kid gets old enough where you're not having to, you know, wrangle him all the time. Okay, let's go into what's your spiritual and religious background? Yeah. How did you grow up? So I grew up um, in a very conservative, traditional evangelical home. Uh, my parents took us to a Presbyterian Church of America congregation mm-hmm. growing up, and that's the more conservative branch of the Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really great childhood there. Um, good community, good people, great biblical education. Um, mm-hmm. But um, somewhere, I guess, late elementary, early middle school, um, me and I have an older sister, she and I both started going to a youth group that we knew about that was at this other church just because we had friends there and there wasn't a ton going on for youth at our church and this place kind of clicked for us. And that congregation was independent Methodist, but um, very charismatic. Um, so a lot of conversations about spiritual gifts and people speaking in tongues and prophesying and laying hands and healing and all that good stuff was going on. Um, and that was a huge part of my formation. Yeah. From like age 12 to 18. Um and some of that was really incredible, and some of that was troublesome <laughs> in some ways. Um, but in that context, I was really given this incredible gift of um, really seeing that God is available all the time um, and present to God's people all the time. And also, I had this youth pastor who would say things like, there's no such thing as junior high Holy Spirit. And you're not supposed to wait until you grow up or you hit some milestone to start connecting with God in the world. And that was a real asset. Um, just really, you know, an incredible foundation, the sense of, yes, always be learning, but also be active. Um, and from there, I went to a religious-affiliated undergrad, Lee University, Um It's a little liberal arts school that was started in the Church of God denomination, which is Pentecostal. Um, So similar um, expressions of worship and theology to what I was experiencing as an adolescent. And um, a Church of God woman one time uh, (laughs) evangelized to me in an airport like maybe a year ago. How'd that go? Yeah. Well, I was really tired or I would have like, asked her more questions, but she was trying to get me on a technicality of, she was telling me that the Eucharist should only be done at certain times of the year or something. Oh, that's it was something super technical. And I was just like, why on earth would God care about exactly when we did the Eucharist? And I know people feel strongly about this. So forgive me for being that idiot who doesn't think that, but I just (laughs) thought it was strange how she was coming at me on a technicality of, of faith. I was, it's something like super technical, not just like, mm-hmm. Oh, I believe in transubstantiation or not. It was like, 
how many what times we should do the Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? I don't know if that's typical of the church of God, but <laughs> I know I was just so tired and it just, I just, I didn't have the energy to talk. I just said, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. It's fine. Like <laughs> go talk to someone else. Sorry. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> God help the person who tries to evangelize Sarah Smith. Uh, okay, but so you went to a Church of God uh, undergrad. Yes, and I was How- a ministry major. Oh, you were a ministry major. I was. There okay, were not. How did you over there? <laughs> yeah. Do they let women be pastors and stuff in Church of God? Yes. So in the Church of God, women can be ordained as ministers, but not bishops. Um, so it's not wholesale available to women. Um, and like many churches, including many Episcopal churches, um, what's on the books doesn't match the culture. Mm. Uh, so even though that was, mm. you know, in writing, totally fair, and there are plenty of Pentecostal women ministers. Um, mm-hmm. It was still the exception, not the norm. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I was studying um, Christian education there, which was helpful in a lot of ways. But um, through college, I just had totally normal young adult experiences that really started to pull at the threads of this whole system of theology and ethics, Uh Um, you know, so ideas about if you don't believe everything or if you don't act a certain way in every way, you're not part of God's church or you're not within the love and family of Christ. Um, But when you build a whole system of belief on one thing, and then that one thing starts to come unraveled. There's n- not a whole lot to keep everything else together. Right. So, you know, just, um, well, just, I was a really sheltered kid, right? So meeting people who were drinking before they were of age and they were doing it responsibly and they were like kind, smart students who liked to have a beer, even though we all signed the paper saying we wouldn't. Right, and right. and that didn't mesh with what I had been told it meant to drink in college. Right. Mm-hmm. Or um, a dear friend of mine that I was involved in campus ministries with came out to me and that was definitely not allowed on the community covenant. Um, but what the paperwork said about who she was and what that meant didn't match my experience mm-hmm. of working and worshiping with her. So mm-hmm. just kind of starting to see those pieces crumble. Um, mm-hmm. But when you have what I think are kind of second or third layers of belief and practice tied up in who is Jesus Christ, you know, it's really hard to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. So I had a couple of years in there where I was very, very angry mm-hmm. and not particularly interested in 
Christian church, mm-hmm. uh, still very compelled by the gospels. Yes. And still very mystical. Um, so I didn't go to church for months and months, but I was walking around my neighborhood looking for signs of wonder. Um, and it was in that season that a friend invited me to go to this little Episcopal church um, that's actually now my sponsoring parish for ordination. And from the first week I was there and like reading through their bulletin and watching the liturgy and seeing the words and seeing all this connected about Jesus being present in this way that is not true of theologies of communion in the Presbyterian church or in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Mm-hmm. I just sat in the back and cried my eyes out. And half the time I actually wouldn't even go take communion because I was mm-hmm. so scared of, of what if what they're saying is true. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was caught between like, if Jesus is really here in this particular way, that is just, 100% mystery and you know you know here with skin on and if if this is true how do i dare go take eucharist mm. but also if it's true where do i get off refusing to accept this invitation mm-hmm. and i would just sit in the back and ball my eyes out <laughs> for months for months. Something <laughs> stirring like, in you, huh? Yeah, I would come late and leave early because <laughs> I didn't want to talk to any of the church people. I just wanted to sit there and contemplate Jesus. Just have your own process with God. Just uh, Yeah, we had God. to find out. You had to start there. Yeah, yeah. The, the internal struggle. Do you think... I want to connect this to Sophia because, you know, Sophia's wisdom and God and like the female personification of God. Mm -hmm. Do you, did you like, when did you start ever thinking about Sophia and would you consider that wrestling with God in that way? Sophia's presence. So when I think about Sophia, I think about, embodied spirituality um, Mm. that like wisdom is knowledge embodied. And for me, there's this, I I have a very high value for intuition. Um, Not in a wholesale. I always believe everything my gut tells me because sometimes I just need a nap. (laughs) And it's not. That's real. Um, but in general, I really, I believe in intuition as this thing. And I think that there's this part of me that was um, it was like the spirit of God in me was connecting to the spirit of God as expressed in those sacraments. I had to sit there and watch it practiced and sometimes go up and participate and sometimes not. And that I think because I was meeting God in this particular way, 
in the liturgy where it's you're physically enacting your response to the invitation to the altar, right? So the priest consecrates uh, presiding and then you can stand up and leave your aisle and walk up and kneel and receive the elements. Um, and for me to choose not to do that sometimes was just as important as the times that I did choose to do it because mm -hmm. part of through this was um, having to kind of reconfigure who I thought God was and whether or not I was interested in any kind of relationship or affiliation with this God um, because if I, you know I had gotten to this point where again where if these kind of smaller pieces of belief about behavior or what Christianity looks like are enmeshed with who God is and what God is about. I was like, well, I don't, I'm not interested in a Jesus who is not interested in my friends or I'm not interested in a Jesus who doesn't have second chances, mm -hmm. um, who expels you from your university because of your behavior or mm -hmm. who is acting petty because you pray differently. So I had to get to a place where I could have, um, yeah, and I think that this was the Holy Spirit in me, was like getting to a place where sometimes I can refuse God's invitation and that does not exclude me from love and belonging. Mm. Um, and that was very physically enacted as I would either receive right. or not. Um week to week struggling that out my own agency and consent in my process with God. I think that was a hundred percent God's wisdom, Sophia, the Holy spirit at work in me struggling this through. Can you talk about why the sacraments are important to you and what, how you understand the sacraments theologically? You don't have to, you know, give a dissertation, but just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, so now I'm, you know, I'm trying to fit myself back into my imagination at that time. Um, I think because I was done with church for a while, I was like, I'm not meeting God here. I don't know if I want to meet God here, if that's who God is. Mm. I was doing a lot of community service projects. I was doing a lot of time in nature by myself. I was had already started instituting this very sacramental orientation to the world. I just didn't have language yeah. or ritual around it. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So things like, you know, fixing a thermos of coffee and going with my best friend out hiking in the woods. And we would call that church and be good. To me, that's super sacramental. Absolutely. I just didn't have any kind of scaffolding for that. And so when I came into the Episcopal Church and it was like, you know, um, I don't, is this, I should know this. Don't tell my liturgy professor. We will not publicize this to him. <laughs> Which <laughs> prayers this is in. But, and, and maybe it's not said explicitly, but risen Lord be known to us in the breaking of the bread. Mm. Right? That's in the prayers. And when you celebrate, you raise the host and you crack it over your head. Yeah, yeah. And that is to reference 
back um, after Jesus was resurrected, he meets the guys on the road to Emmaus and they start chatting about what's happened and what they've seen and who Jesus is, but they don't recognize him until he breaks bread at the meal with them. Yes. And so even the very high liturgy and, and the parish that's sponsoring me is high church. Um, this is about breakfast, right? This is like we encounter and recognize that God is here among us when we sit down for dinner. Um, in the Episcopal Church. My, my good, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, as my good friend Philip always says, you're having cocktails and crackers. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's it too. It's like having real wine and real bread. You just, yeah. it feels different. There's just an earthiness. Um, and I know this isn't true of all liturgical or sacramental churches or priests. I found there to just be this almost rudimentary sacramental theology behind the elaborate ritual. So the ritual becomes this centering point for me where, so my son was baptized um, a little over a year ago, but every time I give him a bath, there's a recollection of baptism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anytime yeah. I share a meal with people on purpose, there is Eucharist. Yes. yes. Um, and, it, you know, there we've created these rituals, and Christ created these rituals um, rooted in our daily lives of care for bodies. Um, I think about this, too, Claire, with sports. Yeah? Oh, my gosh, but yes anointing and healing bodies and well, breaking our bodies together nourishing them and breaking them and yes and the community piece i've always been a team sport person mm -hmm. but doing something the same things over and over and over again coming mm -hmm. to the same place you know and but even then it's least, different every single time yeah but we try to control everything and make it all the same. We all have the same, we, you know, a lot of my teammates said, you know, especially softball and baseball, we're very superstitious. Mm -hmm. And I would always, I'm, I'm just, I'm really into ritual. It's ritual to me that I, you know, chew sunflower seeds the first four innings and then I chew gum the last three. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. like there's just, there's certain things you do. Mm-hmm to remind yourself of whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and that weaves together these stories. Um, yeah. Weaving together stories and even things like um, the first time I ever saw this was at St. Augustine's, but after the major feasts of the church, when people do baptisms, a priest can take a tree branch and put it in the water and mm -hmm. flick it on everybody. And it's called aspurging. Of course, everything has its mm -hmm. own perfect Latin-rooted name. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just like, we don't just baptize one person. Everybody's going to get wet. Or it. using a ton of water. Um, or when you anoint someone, use a good, solid palm full of oil. Just there's an abundance to, mm -hmm. to a little bit of extra 
so that you can't pretend that this is some sanitized version. Cleansing, this is feeding real nourishment. Um, yeah, just getting back to that essential embodiedness and ordinariness of what the sacraments are saying. I love, you know, I was there when Kelsey and our good friends, Kelsey and Heather got baptized together in the river when Becca and Lissa did it for at St. Augustine's in this river in Nashville, Tennessee. And I guess they wanted me to be one of their sponsors and they got in the water and I got in with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I stood out in the water with them and I just, that was so meaningful to me to be in the water yeah, yeah. As they were being baptized and to be there to hug them when they came up and I got wet, you know. I mean, I, I was already like halfway in, but then hugging them, embracing them, you know. I was I was in it in it with them, you know. Especially for those of us. So I was baptized when I was 10 years old. But a lot of people in the Episcopal Church or other mainline churches were baptized as infants and we don't cognitively remember our baptism, but to mm-hmm. participate in meaningful ways, high volume of water <laughs> kind of pushes you to have a new muscle memory of that thing. Um, you know that my question, what is saving your life right now is from that book we're using Barbara Brown Taylor's book. Yes. And I actually just, I've been reading it to prepare and did you realize that? I connected that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's where I got that question. Oh, I love it. So are you asking me what's saving my life right now or just Yeah, do you want to do you want to talk about that? Yeah, is it okay if it's kind of like boring stuff? Absolutely. Like life things. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, what's saving my life? This advent reader is saving my life. It's this super getting me back to this cornerstone and passion of my calling that's about creating spiritual space for people to do their work that yes i just have kind of been out of for a little bit because i have a mm. 18 month old so i don't know <laughs> 24 months of being out of that um and what else has saved my life well my whole family has just had this really awful virus for two weeks um <laughs> and we're all trying to just get through it so the other thing that's saving my life right now is um Sesame Street and essential oils. I love that Sesame Street is saving Claire's life right now. That's hilarious. Um, how many moms can relate to that? Uh, I hope y'all enjoyed part one with Claire. Next week, she'll be back talking about motherhood, priesthood, and embodied theology. You don't want to miss this one. Again, you can find me at the, uh, theosophiapodcast.com and theologycorner.net. Have a great week, everyone. Peace.